Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krauss. I am the co-founder of InventRight and we're going to be doing a whole hour of question and answer, uh, providing you guys have enough questions, which has never been an issue. And I really look forward to it. So if uh, one or a couple of you could type in yes, that you can hear me. Uh, occasionally YouTube glitches, so I don't want to be like talking and um, you guys can't hear me. So if you could confirm that. Okay, great. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Tony, 9-1-Sam. Okay, good deal. So um, what we're going to be talking about today and every day, because that's what InventRight is about, um, is licensing. And so what licensing is, is you renting or leasing your product to a large company. And I say renting or leasing because if they don't perform, you get it back, which is a cool thing, right? Um, so a lot of times people think they're selling their idea or I just want to sell it outright. Well, you're going to get money when you license on the back end every quarter as they make money, you make money. To top load the deal is uh, a rookie move and you definitely don't want to do that. Um, if you have a business and you've been selling the product and you're in 10,000 stores and that's not the case for most of you, okay, you, yeah, you can sell your business plus do a licensing deal. But what most of you guys are doing is literally doing a licensing deal with a provisional patent application and a marketing piece. Maybe you have a prototype, maybe you don't. And um, and then basically it's their money, it's their workforce, so sales, marketing, manufacturing, advertising, all those departments are moving forward. You're plugging your product into their machine, and it is a machine. Maybe they have 20 products, 50, 100, 200 products, whatever it is. Um, we just had a student of ours licensed to, to, to Con Air, and that's a massive, massive company. Um, and so when you license to them, you kind of are them and you have the unlimited money that they have because it's their product now or it's their product providing they perform. If they don't perform, you get it back. And they have all the, these people within the company to keep everything moving forward. And then the biggest thing is distribution, right? So if they're in 30,000 stores, boom, you're in 30,000 stores. So you get the money, the workforce and the distribution all in one place. And it's way more attractive than Shark Tank because Shark Tank's like, oh, do they get the money? Don't get the money. And then you're starting a one product company from scratch. And this one product company isn't tapped into all these different retailers with all their other products. So it's very, very powerful. It's an incredible business model. And it's very um, grassroots in that anybody can do this. Yeah, there's projects you guys do, and we have students that come on board with us, work on very complex, costly projects. But if you pick your projects carefully, um, you could do this the rest of your life, and you would never go broke. You're spending 75 bucks on a provisional, a few bucks on a sell sheet and a virtual prototype. So the first question that I see here is from 67 Roadhugger, and I really like this question, so thank you. I don't know what your real name is, but... Um, thank you for the question because you're just being honest with how you feel about things. So let's let's listen to what he has to say. It says, hi, Andrew. I'm preparing for my enrollment into InventRight soon. Uh, a career professional product designer developer, I pride myself on the details. With respect to the InventRight approach, I'm finding it difficult to simplify the process to best match that of the licensing model and recognizing what I have is good enough. Uh, thanks for all the awesome content you and Steven provide. So what he's used to doing, which is a lot of industrial designers and 
professional product professional product designers um, that are doing this for a living, you know, not licensing the product. Maybe they work as a professional product designer within a company or something like that. Um, they're taught to be very, very detail-oriented in all the little specifics and figure out every little thing. I talked to a woman today that was an industrial designer, um, that is an industrial designer, and I talked to her about sometimes our students that have a professional design background, they struggle because in design school, they teach you to be very um, detail-oriented, every little detail, and very kind of almost anal retentive about the design of the product. And then in VetRight, is kind of the opposite. It's not the opposite, but we're saying, look, just go fishing, see if there's interest. And of course it depends on the product and all how that works out. But um, I think that's pretty normal. We had a, a couple, there was a nice couple of women actually, and they had licensed a couple products with us. And they happened to be where my business partner lives up in Lake Tahoe. They happened to be visiting, that is. And he took a cup of coffee with them. And they had already licensed a couple products. They were trained to do industrial design, which those of you that don't know, industrial design is um, basically like they're professional product designers. They went to college to, to learn that. And they said, to this day, we struggle with our design background and our invent right background. Now, they said they're both valuable, but the design background taught them to be really anal retentive, every little detail, every little angle. And the invent right background is like, go fishing, see if there's interest. You don't want to spend you know, eight months or 10 months on something, refining it when maybe there's no interest, you know? And so that's not because in that same time period, you could have worked on pitching three more products, right? And that is very much the crux or one of them of the invent right approach. And industrial designers and professional designers struggle with that. But I can tell you, um, if you spend tons of money and tons of time on each project, you're going to have less success. Doesn't mean you won't have success but it's kind of less success because you're not playing that numbers game. You're not reaching out to more companies. You're not working on more projects. So, um, you know, we can, we can break you of that to a certain extent. Um, you know, your training as an industrial designer, 67 road hugger is a good thing. I always felt like industrial designers could be like inventors on steroids, but, um, and their design skills, which most of our students don't have, that's amazing. But a lot of things get you hung up. When you go to design school, you don't get taught how to run a business. You definitely don't get taught how to license. And the professors there are brutal. They were like the English professors that I was afraid of. They were so specific and so nitpicky. And they just, they seemed to like to torture me. At least that's the way I was. And I think when I, I talked to this industrial designer today, and she said, oh, yeah, that's, that's how they are. Um, so you got to break you a little bit of that, but we're not going to take away those mad design skills you have because if our students that don't have any design skills, which is the vast majority of our students, some of them are engineers and such, but um, if they can license with your skills, you can. So we always, Steve and I always thought industrial designers would be the rock star inventors, but they turned out not to be, a lot of them, because they're, they're too wrapped up in their training and looking at every little thing. So... But we've had plenty. If you can become a level-headed industrial designer with the InventRight approach, then you could be a rock star uh, inventor, I think. Um, sorry to ramble so much on that, guys. I just I think it's a fun topic. Um, Linda Marie said, hey, Linda Marie, um, you're a regular. Um, hi, Andrew. We found a good – oh, by the way, anything that I shared today is not to be considered legal advice. Please seek the services of an attorney before you move forward with, with anything. And um, 
And if you are interested, you can learn more about our coaching and mentoring program on InventRight. But I try not, unless people ask specific questions, I try not to talk about that on here because that's like old school. Like you came on this Q&A to get questions answered, not be pitched our coaching course. Okay, but we do have one. So that's all I'll say. Um, Linda Marie. Hi, Andrew. We found a good size company that appears to be a good fit for our product with a large U.S. presence, but they're based in Denmark. Does our PPA have any value in other countries? Um, yes and no. Uh, uh, all patents are only good in the countries in which you file them. U.S. patent works in U.S. Chinese patent works in China. Canadian patent works in Canada. Okay, but the the U.S. is part of what's called the PCT, the Patent Cooperation Treaty, um, or there's the Paris Treaty as well, I believe. And and um, so most European countries, I'm sure, including Denmark, I don't know for sure, but I'm like 99.9% sure Denmark's including that, um, are under that patent cooperation treaty. So if you file a U.S. provisional patent, and we did a video, I did a video with patent attorney Jake Ward on this. You can look it up. A YouTube video is free for you guys. Um, in a roundabout way, a U.S. provisional is a provisional patent in these other countries because what it does is it preserves your right to later file what's called a PCT application and then later file in those countries. So um, absolutely, I would, if it was, I can just tell you what, I'm not going to give you legal advice. I can tell you what I would do if it was me. I'd be perfectly happy with my U.S. provisional. And if they were patents were really important to them, you could say, great, we can file a PCT and then file in Denmark. So that's the, the long and short of it. But if you want details on that, we got into nitpicky details with patent attorney Jake Ward. Probably if you just type in Jake Ward into our YouTube show, you can find out more about how a U.S. provisional is kind of a quasi-provisional patent in other countries that don't even have provisional patents. But there's some caveats there. I've never, ever had one of our students have that bite them in the butt, ever, in the, the, all the years we've been doing this. So there's, there's all these things that can happen. And then there's the things that typically happen. I mean, we've had students in over 65 countries. We knew this for 21 years. People ask me questions sometimes, and I'll say, well, we've never seen that happen in 21 years with students in 65 countries. Does that give you some perspective? And they're like, oh, okay. But, but then I say, well, that could happen. So, But worrying yourself with what could happen, and especially spending large amounts of money or even small amounts of money on things that was you're more likely to get hit by lightning, um, that's not really the smart way to invent and license products. So getting that information from, from people that have been through it like us is a good thing. Um, Mike says, seems like a PPA is worth more to a firm if not shared with its competitors. I don't know what that means. So is, is, best, so is it best to contact the preferred firm or just contact the all firms at the same time? How would you select your preferred firm biggest second biggest, mid-size, or small firm. Um, many thanks and the awesome help you and Stephen provide. Both you, bo both of you are the best. Thank you, Mike. Um, so let's just talk about reaching out. You know, when you, when you are licensing a product, you're going to want to shoot yourself in the head if you reach out to one at a time. Because if you get interest and then you're like, oh, these are my guys. And then they go back, you go back and forth, back and forth. And there's a lot of details involved there, of course. But let's say two and a half months, mm, we decide we're not interested. You call three more, another one interested. Back and forth, back and forth, three months now. Uh, we decide we're not interested. Oh my God, you can string this thing along forever. It's perfectly acceptable to call all of them and you should call all of them at the same time. And you know, it's 
not uncommon to get interest from multiple at the same time, but to get to the final negotiation stage is very rare and it's a great problem to have. And it quite frankly is not a problem. And so you move forward with every company, even let's say you have interest from three, you move forward with all of them as if the other one, you're not getting interest from anybody else. You don't talk about the other ones, you don't pit them against each other. There are very rare cases where you would where you would say something, but you move and it just works itself out. That's what I've found over the last 21 years. Now, your part about is a PPA worth more to affirm if not shared with competitors? So see what you're the way you're phrasing it, Mike, is you think you're selling your patent and you're not. You're selling the benefit of your product. So um, but what you're essentially saying is. Or will these other companies like it more if they know you didn't show it to anybody else? Um, that's extremely insecure. Uh, I, I think that if they're really confident, you're not bringing it up. Of course, you're going to shop it around. But if they're that worried about it that you showed it to somebody else, the only guys that I feel like really freak out about that, the only ones in any industry are the DRTV infomercial guys. And I will make the exception there. And say those guys, they're really paranoid because they knock each other off left and right. They're really terrible about that. Um, so I would, and I'm generalizing there. They're not all bad, but there are some that are pretty bad. And that you just move, you do those one at a time. If it's a DRTV infomercial product because they, they trip out when you showed it to somebody else. So then in that case, you would pick you know, your best one first and then go down from there. Don't do that with any other industry that I know of shoot it out to all of them, okay? And you don't need to separate it, big, medium, size, small. You call them all at the same time. You LinkedIn message them all at the same time. And those are the techniques that you use. You use LinkedIn, use email, and use phone. LinkedIn being my favorite now, but, you know, sometimes these guys, the marketing managers or gals, whoever's there um, for the company, with some companies like the person that you really need to reach out to, they're only going on LinkedIn, when they need a job or they go on there once a month or something like that. So for those, if they're not being responsive, you need to pick up the freaking phone and call, them, you know, and it's not a big deal. You're just asking permission to send your cell sheet. You know, maybe you're getting the email from the gatekeeper and then you send it on over, but you really should be using all those, those methods. Um, so thank you, Mike. I appreciate that for the question. Uh, Jason, if I have a product in the grooming industry, but it's not exactly fitting into companies like Philips product line, but can still benefit their customers. Do I contact companies like them? Um, I can't say, say one way or another, Jason, because I haven't seen your product. But, you know, I like what you're saying because you're actually looking at their product line, which a lot of inventors don't. They just go, oh, these three big companies, I'll just send them. You need to go on their freaking website and look at their product line and go, you know, would my product fit in here? So, for instance, I'm just making up some random. I don't know if this is the case, but Jason, let's say you're I'm not. This isn't your product because we don't know what your product is. But let's say you went on the Philips website. They make razors and God knows how many other things. But you notice they only make grooming supplies for humans. But your you know, shearer or whatever is for dogs. But you looked at their entire product line. They don't do anything for animals. Is that a stretch? Yeah, it is. Now, is it going to kill you if you show it to them? And they're like, oh, you know, we've been thinking about getting into grooming tools for dogs. And you might get lucky there. That's fine. I don't see any harm in that.
but you should really find companies that are in major major retailers you want to be in and sell products in that micro category. Now, you know, for instance, uh, grooming products for dogs and grooming products for humans, I don't see that. That's not the same micro category. Uh -uh. Those are two different micro categories. So that is quite a bit of a stretch. Um, well, they sell shears. Yeah, I'd say that you could you could reach out to them. I wouldn't be hesitant to, to do that. But um, so, you know, I mean, this is what I can say. Most of our students, when they come to us, like they got like two or three companies. And the coach is like, oh, no, I know your product. You could have 20 or 30 or sometimes 40 companies. Very few inventors are doing that. And that's one of the reasons why our students are licensing when others aren't. They don't know how to make their list of companies. They don't know how to. They think that it has to be the company has to be making more or less the exact same thing, which is not the case. You can imagine how that would limit your product. So on that respect, people get too specific. They're like, oh, they have to be making more or less the exact same thing. No, they could be making stuff in the same space. You know, if it's a kitchen gadget, they're making kitchen gadgets. You know, if it's a barbecue product, they're making barbecue. If it's a gardening product, they're making a gardening product, but not an automotive product. You know, go to a company that makes nothing but automotive products and go, well, their stuff has wheels, so I'll present them my gardening trail. You know, that's not, that's, that's going too far broad. So people really struggle with that. I would say it's fairly time consuming to make your list of companies. I would say two to 10 hours. And you should not be lazy about that. It's so important because if you have 30 companies, it's 30 chances for success. If you have three companies, it's three chances for success. So think on that. And, you know, you don't want to be getting so broad where you're getting ridiculous, where that doesn't make sense, but you don't want to get too narrow either. And, you know, after you've been doing this for a while, you get a feel for it. You just know okay, these ones are right. Oh, that's that's just too much of a stretch. But I can stretch it out a little bit and go with these guys, and that doesn't make sense over there. And you, you, it's just a skill that you have to learn. And when our coaches work with the students, we talk to them about this, which we can't do right here, obviously, Jason. And by the way, don't share any confidential information in the chat. Of course, that goes. that's just obvious. But when a coach is looking at the student's product, and they can say, oh, well, you know, maybe you could expand it here, but I wouldn't go there. And I go with these retailers and I go with companies that are doing this and that. And um, they can guide them very specifically. And then you felt it, you've experienced it. And then it's a little bit easier to do with the next product. Some products are more difficult than others. There's, you know, consumer products. There's industrial products. There's medical products. And sometimes people think that our students are just doing consumer products. I had this guy license this giant drill the size of like a Volkswagen bug, you know, for drilling into the ground and all sorts of stuff. So licensing is licensing. It doesn't matter if it's industrial or consumer or commercial or B2B or B2C, you know, you can license just about anything as long as it makes sense for them to sell that, you know? Um, let's see. So thank you, Jason. Good question. Hi, Andrew. This is from Jonathan. Hope all is well. What questions am I to expect initially if a company shows interest? Are negotiations easy to an extent? Um, no, they're not easy, especially at the beginning. Can they get easy? Yeah. I think once you experience it once or twice, I think that you can get pretty comfortable with all the major deal points. This is what I'll say. 
And this is why it's not so easy for people that are new to it. But once you get the hang of it, it can be. I think there's this misperception that the company will tell you what to do. And I can tell you right now, they will not. You need to be, this freaks people out, but it's not that hard, you know, when our negotiation coach is guiding you. But you're more responsible for moving that deal the direction it needs to go than the company. They won't be like, oh, you know, Bob, we like your product and here's our formal process. We're going to do this and this. and this. They don't do that. Even companies that do a lot of licensing don't do that. Sometimes they, you can ask them, oh, say, so what's the next step? And they're like, well, we want to do this now. Okay. But you need to move the deal forward and point it in the right direction. They will say things and take the conversation a certain direction. And by the way, it's not the company um, guiding you. It's a person. And they're people just like you and me. So, um, you know, they could have done 10 licensing deals, 20, 30, but the guy, the marketing manager who you sent it to, he's been with the company a year and a half. He's never done a licensing deal, but he's the one that liked your product. Now he's your superman or superwoman within the company, right? And so he's asking some dumb questions sometimes because he doesn't know how to move forward because he wants to kind of vet you before he shows it in the rest of the company in which some of those other people might have more experience in moving the licensing deal forward. So they'll ask, oh, well, send me your patent and prototype. Do you want to do that? Never. You never want to do that up front. You always want to get on the phone and talk to him. And so here's an interesting statistic that um, our negotiation coach told me. He said, literally half the time, they, they don't say that often, by the way, but sometimes they do. But when they do, they email you back, oh, send me your patent prototype. And then we always tell our students, no, never do that. It's not that they're going to steal your idea or lose your prototype or something or something like that. It's that it doesn't move the deal forward, giving them what they want at that point. You need to get on the phone so they realize you're a real person. So they realize you're easy enough to work with. So you're not embarrassed to show your product around the company. You're not going to reach out and embarrass them, right? And you want to talk about the product. You know, now you're a real person. If you just go back and forth, back and forth, the email, you're not real. You're not, you know, they're like, oh, I like that guy. He seems pretty chill. Like, he doesn't seem like the wacky inventor that's going to, like, freak out if I want to make it a different color or something, right? So you're establishing rapport. That's incredibly important. But here's a statistic that we've noticed over the last 21 years. When they do ask for the patent prototype, which they don't frequently, up front, you know, the e they, you, got, you send them your sell sheet or your video, they email you back, but can you send me your patent prototype? And we say, oh, can we set up a time to talk? I've got some questions for you. you probably got some questions for me. And you get on the phone half the time when they ask you for both those things. They won't ask you for either when they get on the phone. They didn't know how to start the conversation. So remember I said, like, maybe the company's licensed a bunch of products, but the guy you're contacting had never done a licensing deal. That's why they ask stupid questions like that. Because that is stupid. Let's talk about the product before we get in the patent prototype, right? Um, so you want to get on the phone and establish a core. That's very, very important. That is not easy to do. You know, saying a royalty rate on a first call, eh, don't want to say that. How do I answer these questions? What do you want? All these different things. So that's one of the things our negotiation coach guides our students on. And then once you become empowered with that back and forth on knowing how to move a deal forward, then you can do it on your own. And so it is the hardest part in the process. It's one of the hardest parts. It's not easy, Jonathan. I'm glad you asked, though, because I, I bet a lot of other people were wondering about that. Uh, let's see. Hi, Damien. Damien just said hi. Um, 
Caleb said, I have a German, I have a, sorry, I have a tool. I got ahead of myself. I have a tool design. I'd like a German manu. I'd like to, I'd like to a German manufacturer. How can I protect my idea? Um, I would just file a U.S. provisional. Again, anything I'm sharing tonight is not legal advice. I'd file a U.S. provisional patent application. More than likely, a German manufacturer has distribution in the U.S. If they're a really big tool manufacturer, they'd be selling here as well as Germany. So your provisional patent, if you later file a utility, will cover you in the U.S. And like I said earlier, it gives you the right to file overseas as well. And definitely uh, Germany is part of the PCT. So, so I would just get a U.S. provisional patent application for 75 bucks. Um, that's what I would do. Um, and I wouldn't just approach that German manufacturer that you like so much. I'd approach a ton of other ones, too, because you shouldn't be working on any product that you only have one potential licensee. You file the provisional or even crazier. People file a full patent. They make the marketing materials. And then you call one company, and if they're not interested, you're toast. Are you kidding me? You know, so if you believe that you only have one company, and if they can't license, there's nobody else. Now I talked to people where they thought was this case, and then I looked at the product, and I'm like, that's not true at all. You could go over here, you could do this, you could do that. Um, so, uh, Caleb, um, I would just file a U.S. provisional. But again, that's not legal advice. So seek the service of an attorney before you before you move forward with anything. It's my little disclaimer. Uh, Valentino, hi, Valentino. How are you doing? Uh, Sheila, hi, you too. Uh, Pepe, uh, hi, Andrew. If I have a sell sheet on a website with a password, is it better to send it by mail or fill the company form for inventors? Okay, um, yeah, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't ever ask them to enter a password. So um, you don't need to put, you don't need a website when you're licensing. And if you're not venturing and selling it yourself, I would take it down. You don't want to put your product up and publicly disclose it. Um, don't freak out if you have, but it's not necessary to license. And I definitely don't like it when, when inventors ask the um, potential licensee to enter a password. When you use, uh, I'll give you guys a good tip here. When you use YouTube, Andrew, was public. Yeah, it is, but it's not. So yeah, you don't want to publicly post it up on YouTube. So there are three different types of settings on YouTube there. And we're on YouTube right now. There is public and there is private. Most of you probably think that you go with private. No, you don't because you need their YouTube username if you go with private. And who's going to know their YouTube username if you're contacting a marketing manager? And then there's unlisted. You want to go with unlisted. So essentially what that is, is you upload it to YouTube and you got to create an account. You can use your existing Google account if you have one. If you don't, you can create one and it's free and you upload it and you select unlisted. It's very, very important. You don't want to publicly disclose your product. So essentially only people search for it. They can't find it. There's no way they can find it. The only way they can find it is if you give them your link. So it's essentially a secret link. So essentially the way I look at it is the password is baked into the link. Right. And it's this long link with random letters and numbers and characters and stuff. So you want to send um, your sell sheet by just sending them the link. So, Pepe, another thing that you can do is sometimes these forms, some of these companies are really lame. Any company that doesn't give you an opportunity to upload marketing materials 
is freaking stupid in my opinion, because it says like, unless they have some other reason why there is one reason I'll talk about that, but um, there's a, it says, describe your product inventors and even professional marketers do a piss poor job of doing a written description on what the product is. That's not a good marketing piece. You know, you want a sell sheet, you want graphics or you want a video, you know, but just to write up my came up with this idea and it does this. It's like, that's terrible, terrible marketing. You should never, ever do that. Even if they're, that's what they're asking for. Don't do that. Give them what you think is going to work or what I'm telling you is going to work, which is a sell sheet or a video sell sheet. So Pepe, in that case, you wouldn't write, you know, what it is. You don't you know, send them to your website and say, enter this password because they're just going to, you know, when you, when you, when you send it through the form or you email them or you send it through LinkedIn, you know, they're, they're, they click on the link and it says password and they got to go back, copy and paste password. You're making them jump through hoops. These marketing managers are super busy, respect their time. That's not being respectful of their time. Okay. So when, if you're submitting through a form on their website, all you have to do is get that YouTube link and put it there. Now, if you have a sell sheet and you're like, well, there's no place to upload an Andrew, well, put it on freaking Dropbox. You know, Dropbox is free. If you don't know what Dropbox is, D-R-O-P-B-O-X, and you think about that, Dropbox is so simple spelling, I didn't think about it. But Dropbox.com, get a free account, and you can put it in your Dropbox, and then you can grab the link for that document that's in your Dropbox, like your private documents. And again, only people with that link can see it. So you paste that into the form or where, whenever, wherever you're sending it. If you're sending it via email, just attach it. But if you're putting it on LinkedIn, you might want to do the link or you know, you're putting it um, on a form where you're submitting a form, an invention submission form on a company's site. So hopefully that was helpful, Pepe. But it's a pet peeve of mine. Whenever I see a student, I saw a student the other day and they put it on Vimeo instead of YouTube. And there was a password because they wanted me to look at it. And I looked at it and I lectured him gave a few sentences. Don't do the password. And he's like, oh, that was just for you, Andrew. Of course, I'll be putting on YouTube. I'm like, good. You know, but just don't do that. They don't have the time. They have about six to 10 seconds. That's all they have. Don't make them jump through hoops. Um, Okay, Jam, a basic hygiene product has a little-known use in the garden. For use in the garden, you make a simple device for it. I want to license the device. Should I first go to the maker of the hygiene product? No. So this is kind of funky, but, you know, I like that you were able to share that. Oh, oh and hopefully they'll lend out a hand to help out the licensee for the device. No. Okay. You're incorrect on that. But I like how you were able to describe a little bit about the product without disclosing anything. So he says there's a basic hygiene device, for those of you that are confused, or I can see you being confused. And you can, uh, basic hygiene product, and you can use that in the garden, but you need to make a simple device to go along with it, with the hygiene product. So, um, you know, obviously, if you have a hygiene product and it has this new use in the garden, it's a completely different use. It's essentially a different product. So you should approach the companies making um, the gardening product. And when they say, well, how do we make this? Go, well, there's that device over there. 
and you're just going to change it like this. And they're like, oh, okay. You don't need to involve the company making the hygiene product. I don't know if the hygiene product is actually a liquid or a solution, and then you got the device, or the hygiene product is uh, has the device. It doesn't matter, but you get the general idea. You don't need to involve them at all, nor are you probably infringing on their patent. I can't say for sure because I don't know what the product is. <clears throat> but um, just approach the company that you want to license it to and cite this other product. And so they can go, oh, well, they can make that. So we know we can make it. Okay. So that was a good one, Kramer. Thank you. Uh, Linda Marie, so thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Yankee says, is Shark Tank legit? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to say Shark Tank is, it's not, not legit. What I'm going to say is Shark Tank is that TV show where people go on there and they pitch their product. And do they get the money? Don't get, get the money, right? Um, it's, it's a TV show. And it's, I'm just going to say it straight up. It's really sad when an inventor or an entrepreneur thinks the only way they can get their product in the market is going to a freaking TV show. So I'll just keep this really, really short. A TV show is not, the purpose of the TV show is not to help you license your product, venture your product, sell your product, okay? Purpose of TV is to get viewers so they can sell advertising, okay? That is the, the only purpose of a TV show, right? Now, let's say the only purpose, okay, if you watch a show about training your dog, you know, you're learning to train your dog, but you think about what the network wants. They want viewers so they can sell advertising, okay? Ultimately, that's what a TV show is about. As a side note, if it was a show about training your dog and it helped the dog owner, yeah, they're helping you train your dog, okay? Um, but it's sad when people think, my only chance is to go on Shark Tank, because that's ridiculous. And so, you know, I, I'm not of course, I'm not going to say if, 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 uh, if it's legit or not legit. It's legitimately a TV show. And some people go on that show and some people get money to start their own business, right? And, and manufacture and sell the product. So that seems legit to me. Um, but it's not nearly as exciting about as, as licensing. Because on that show, what you're doing is you're starting a one SKU, one product company. And I don't care if it's with a shark. A shark doesn't carry as much weight as a major manufacturer, right? And so this major manufacturer, let's say it's a, uh, let's say it's a gardening product from the gentleman earlier, and maybe that manufacturer has 15 products, 10 products, five products already in a Home Depot or a Lowe's or whatever. That relationship is a lot stronger than if a shark or their team or you go, well, we were on Shark Tank five months ago or two years ago. You know, that doesn't carry that much weight with the buyer. Might have looked nice on the packaging. Yeah, maybe. But you know, licensing is way sexier. Now, it might not make for good TV. Steve and I have been candidates for a couple TV shows. They never ended up flying um, because Hollywood's flaky um, and just this is the way it is. And when people call us now and say, oh, we're kind of doing a show about inventors. We want to know if you're interested. We, we don't even remotely get excited. We're like, OK, we'll talk to you. If you want to pitch a show, you can pitch a show with us in it. But um, anyway, so when you're licensing, you get the money. You get the workforce and you get the existing distribution. Retailers don't like one skew, one product companies. I don't care if you are in Shark Tank or not. So this thought, do I go and get the money? Don't I get the money? The money is a very small part of it. Is it critical? Do you need to have enough money to um, sell the product and go big? Yeah. But these big companies have unlimited money in lines of credit. So, And they also have the workforce. You're not creating this team from scratch. 
right? And they don't like one SKU, one product companies, the buyers. So, you know, let, let's say you got your product in a Home Depot and you work tooth and nail to get in a Home Depot. Um, and you're a one SKU, one product company. Let's say your product's selling pretty good, okay? But now a manufacturer's rep for, let's say it's a gardening product, comes in there and talks to Bob the buyer and says, hey, Bob, we got uh, some products on your shelf. We want to add these two. We'll give you discounts on these others. And guess what? You know, Bob's giving them more face time, right? Bob the buyer at Home Depot. And he's giving them more face time. And he's like, yeah, let, let me see what you can do. And he's looking around and going, hmm. And he finds you. Let's say you fought tooth and nail, which you have to. Most of the time, um, retailers don't like taking on one SKU, one product companies. But let's say you fought tooth and nail and you actually got in Home Depot, okay? You're going to be the first one they kick to the curb. You're not getting the same face time with the buyer. You're not giving discounts on other products. So when you license to that big company, you are that big company. And not only can they get it in the retailer, but more importantly, they can keep it in the retailer because that buyer wants to make that seller happy because they're giving them stuff, Right. And so there's nothing wrong with venturing a product and selling it yourself. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, on Shark Tank, getting back to Shark Tank, you're just getting the money. That's it. And a shark. And maybe they have connections, but they, none of them are going to have the same connections with retailers in, in most cases as a potential licensee that's got way, way more products than they do. So um, I think it's legit for what it is. The problem is people don't see what it is, you know, and some people see what it is and they utilize that show to manipulate it to get some free publicity. But when you're licensing, you don't need that. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't I don't know all the details, though, of how I mean, the contracts on some of these shows are horrendous. I'm not talking specifically about Shark Tank, where they just kind of want to own your butt. It's craziness. Um, I don't. That's why I think it's a whole I think entertainment law is a whole separate category because the things they get away with in entertainment law, it just seems almost like it's illegal. Like they couldn't do that. You know, it's craziness. So do, do, did I used to watch that show? Yes. Do I watch it anymore? No. Um, it, it just turns my stomach because not because it's a bad show. It's actually a good show. It's actually kind of a fun show to watch. Because I think like, oh, my God, they could just license that thing, you know. But if you've got to start your own business um, and you know what it is and you want to play around with doing that and you've been running your own business, and you want to raise money and you want to team up with those sharks, I don't see anything wrong with that. You know, but but as some people like they just hold out hope like it's the only way they can sell their product. That's just sad. Um, that I don't like. But yeah, it's, I think it's a legitimate show. It's, it's a well done show. It's been on the air for God knows how long. Um, very entertaining to most people. Um, now, one thing they do on that show, too, is they always, do you have a patent on that? It makes for good TV. So they cater to a very uneducated crowd of what they think is interesting. And it creates a lot of misperceptions on how things really work in the business world. And I, that part of it I don't like. Um, but I don't think there's anything fundamentally wrong with it as long as you understand what it is. Um, let's see. Well, Joel... Joel said, is it good to send your sell sheet to Mark Portney for help? So Mark Portney is a guy that Stephen's been having on to a bunch of YouTube shows. Very different approach. He ventures products. And he's a character. And Stephen likes having him on um, because he's, he's kind of entertaining. And, and it gives people an idea of, like, the massive difference between licensing and venturing. Um, so, 
you know, that's up to you if you want to do that, Joel. But um, that's not what Mark doesn't do licensing. And I talked to Stephen about it. I'm like, why do we have Mark on so much? And Stephen's like, you know, I like having him on because it shows people how difficult venturing is. But and let him talk about that. So if somebody wanted to go that route, they could. So Stephen just likes having him on the show. And, you know, it's nice to have some people on there that aren't just focused on licensing sometimes. So, um, but that's a decision that you need to make on your own. I can't make that decision for you. Um, We mean fitness. I don't have your first name. Um, Once a company has requested a sell sheet and then follow on information such as a presentation, is it usually that they no longer respond to follow-up inquiries? Um, no, it's, it's extremely common that when you send the sell sheet and you need to follow up quite a bit before they respond. They're just busy. They're inundated with emails. Um, sometimes they might ignore it. Like, I'm just overwhelmed with my two bosses giving me these jobs and I got all this email. And they see your email. Hey, I'm following up on my sell sheet. And they just go on to something else. And before you know it, it goes down and down in their inbox. So you need to be very persistent but very polite past in following up. And sometimes it's actually good if you've made a lot of follow-up attempts to to say, um, look, uh, I'm looking to license this to you. Resend the sell sheet. Don't make them dig through their emails. Hey, you didn't get back to me, and then don't attach it. Like, remember I talked about not making them do extra work? So you reattach everything. Let them see the email chain. You've been trying to reach out to them a couple times. And say, hey, you know, I just if this isn't a right match for your your product line or your company, you know, just right, right, not a right match. Actively ask for the no. And you'd be surprised how many will say not a right match then. Great. Okay. I can move on. But if they're still not responding to that, maybe they're not seeing it. Maybe you got their email wrong, but it's very common to have to follow up quite a bit. They're just very, very busy. So we mean fitness. Um, Make sure to, uh, but don't like be emailing them every other day, okay? And the best technique for dealing with this, keep reaching out to more companies. Our students, when they're very prolific, or that's pretty much standard for a lot of products, reaching out to 20 or 30 companies. You're busy reaching out to more companies. It's not a big deal if they still haven't got back to you in 10 days. And then you follow up with them again. But it's the way you ask and what you sent and, and all that. And sometimes if you reach out a bunch of times, they're still not responding, actively ask for a no. Look, if this isn't a right match for you, just reply, not a right match, and put in quotes, not a right match, um, and move on, you know. But if you, like, submit to, like, two or three companies, and this is when people are new to this, and they're getting obsessed with these two or three companies, and then you're just sitting there thinking and thinking and thinking about Keep yourself busy with reaching out to more companies and more projects, and then you won't drive yourself crazy because a lot of licensing is a waiting game, you know. Um, uh, hi, this is from Matthew, Matthew Miller. Hi, Andrew, Matthew Miller. Um, I submitted an idea to Hasbro several months ago. I finally got a word back from them. F.A. I don't know what that means. Um, okay, that's good. Yeah, months ago. Okay, well, you know, it took them months to get back. And, um, you know, not all companies take that long, but sometimes it happens. So I just gave you some tips everybody and Matthew is saying looks like I gotta get back but it took a month other companies some will get back in days not too many some weeks um, usually it's not months um, but Hasbro is a very big company and they have that open portal now 
used to be with toy companies, you'd have to go to a toy broker and then they would show it to the company and you didn't know what they're showing and what they weren't showing. And that really um, kind of sucked. Toy companies, you're just going directly with them these days for the most part. And by the way, don't look for a licensing agent to do this for you. Um, that's I, I've never met an inventor that had a licensing agent um, license a non-toy product. Um, you just go direct to companies. You can do it. That's what we empower people to do. Um, okay, uh, Valentino. Hi, Andrew. I can say with confidence that I'm pretty good at problem solving. A good, pretty good problem solver can be pretty creative, but ideas only seem to come on their own. Do you have any tips for generating them faster? Yes, um, but it's not about faster. It's about generating more vetted ideas. Um, most inventors don't have a formal process, and if I ask them what's your process for coming up with ideas, they couldn't tell me. They're like, I don't know. They just kind of come to me. It just started happening to you one day, and that's actually pretty common. But uh, so it's not about coming up with ideas faster, although this will take care of that as well. It's about vetting the idea right up front. And actually, so this is what you do. You go on Google Images and you study a microcategory. So, um, you know, you, like you can't study all barbecue. I always use this as an example. You guys heard this before. You can't study all the barbecue products. That's overwhelming, you know, because there's too many out there. There's so many barbecue products out there. But... If you study that broad category and then you're like, you know what? I'm going to do barbecue spatulas. Everybody is a barbecue spatula. You could study that and become an expert in about four hours, probably six max. Know every barbecue spatula, price points, benefits of each one, all that. No invention. Let's just say you like barbecue, okay? No invention. Study the category. Try not to invent too much while you're studying it, okay? Study it all, then put your feet up on the desk, maybe another day. Make notes on all this. Maybe use Evernote. Maybe just bookmark it in your browser. Maybe take paper notes, whatever the hell works for you. Maybe put an Excel spreadsheet. I don't care. But you can't let it go in one ear and out the other. And you know all these products, no invention, okay? Study that micro category of barbecue specials, and then you invent. And the idea may come to you literally while you're looking at all this stuff, preferably not because you want to focus on really studying the category. I mean, if you do come up with something, write it down. Maybe later that day, maybe two days later, you're in the shower, maybe you're driving. Maybe you go back a couple days later and you look at all your research and you're like, hmm, you put your feet up on the desk and you think on it. Don't force it. And so now you've studied a micro category and you've come up with an invention, being an expert in that category. Very few inventors do that. Most inventors come up with something. And the longer you're thinking about it and you don't do anything about it, the more it becomes fixed in your mind. This is what it is. This is what it is. And then people are very hesitant to do the research, to look at everything else in the space. Oh, well, and then they, they do it half-assed. They're like, well, that thing sucks and that sucks. That's no good. That's cheap. That's too expensive. And they're just trying to prove, oh, my product's better than everything. That is amateur hour. You don't want to do that. So it's harder to really be objective after the fact. But if you really want to be a high-functioning inventor, very few inventors do this, but if you really want to be a high-functioning inventor, which is what you're getting at, you study the microcategory first, and then you come up with an invention. Or the second you come up with the invention, you get on Google Images, you do that research right away. So you haven't fallen in love with your idea. That's how a pro does it. And that's also the quicker and better way to come up with a better product and faster. And it's fun. But if you 
come up with an invention, you don't take a look at the marketplace and study all the products out there for a year, you're wasting a bunch of your time, a lot of mental energy. You've got to study that right away. And you're more likely to make a change to it. So, um, Valentino, I love that question. And, and when I so you're doing that using Google Images. You can use Amazon, Google Images, Google Shopping. Google Images is my favorite because you get all this visual stimulation. And as inventors, we're all pretty creative and we're all pretty visual, most of us. So you get all that visual stimulation. And some of the, the products, if you typed in barbecue special, will go through to a, an article or a blog post or a pro place where the product is sold. It's kind of all over the map. And it's fun. And I think most of you, if you didn't already have an invention, well, you'll find that to be a lot of fun. But it's anxiety producing if you came up with the idea six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago, two years ago, and now you're studying the marketplace. And citing what you've seen, oh, well, I don't know, I've been down to Home Depot and Lowe's, I haven't seen it. Crap, don't do that. Look, because there's a ton of stuff that's out there that you've never seen, you need to know about it, okay? And I just said crap to get your attention. I'm not a big at swearing at all, but every once in a while I'll do that to get people's attention in case you're falling asleep. Um, let's see what we got here. Do, do, do. Uh, S. Swir swirlware. Most large invention submission forms are incredibly skewed in their favor. You mean forms on their website? I, you know, I, if it says like they won't keep it confidential, if you see that as skewed in their favor, I don't. File a provisional patent, you're fine. Um, if it's going to say some forms, some companies will put stuff up that's just not okay. I wouldn't say it's common, but saying like if you submit through this, this uh, form that we'll pay you a maximum of $5,000. Um, don't submit there. They're telling you they don't want your idea. Or I've seen a few of them. I used to see, I saw this on um, Simple Human site. They make those trash cans. And it said, whatever you send us, we own. What? Are you serious? So, but don't think that's common. That's Those are few and far between. Um, but, you know, you need to read the submission form on their site. As long as you're okay with those terms, go ahead and submit. You can try to go around that form, go to a marketing manager on LinkedIn for that company and send to them so you're not complying with whatever they said on that form. But I think that a lot of times inventors think like people, when I was a coach, I'm not coaching anymore. I have 23 employees to manage and eight contractors. But um when I was a coach, I get people, oh, is this okay? And I look at it and they're like, they thought it was terrible. I'm like, that's fine. You know, it, it might look nasty to you. So after you've, you got to figure out what's acceptable and what's not. And some people think that, that I've got, they've got to agree to keep it confidential. And that's not really very realistic. They don't know what you're sending them yet. That might really put them between a rock and a hard place. So follow your provisional patent and be okay with sending it to them. Um, but any, anything I share today is not legal advice. So keep that in mind. So. Um, and then you can go around lots of companies. If you're only Sheila, if you're only submitting products to companies with a submission form on their site, you're missing the mark. There's tons of companies that are ripe for licensing. They have distribution and major retailers and they've got no form on their site. There's no page that says anything about inventing or inventors. But if you submit to their, a marketing manager, they're like, oh yeah, send it on over. So don't, go looking for only for companies that have submission forms. 
you're shooting yourself in the foot there. You're not being a pro when you do that. It's fine if you're new to it, but you're being a pro when you reach out to companies as well that are in the major retailers you want to be in and, um, and don't have a form at all, you know, but when people are new, they just look for that form. They look for confirmation. Oh, you're open innovation friendly. And, oh, you, you're rolling out the red carpet for us inventors. Um, I, that's, don't, don't look for that. It's fine if they have that. That's great. But then it could also be a black hole. So I would also try to get in through other avenues, you know. Um, so to me, they had a form. I would also submit to them a marketing manager through LinkedIn. You know, and if they and the gatekeeper, when you call, both say, no, got to submit to that form. Well, you know, that's they've been read the riot act from their attorneys. No, you can only submit there. But if they're like, oh, yes, yeah, send it on over, you know, and you get their eyeball where you never know what's on the other side of those forms. You don't know if it's a professional marketing manager or some intern or it's just nobody's looking at it. And they're looking at it every three months and then maybe a little later. And it can vary. Like they might be looking at it every week for a while and then they'll look at it for three months. You know, and they're not responding to anybody. That happens. But then you get it to a marketing manager, like, oh, this is clever, you know. So that's part of going pro. We got a few more minutes here to answer a few more questions. Um, okay. Uh, Wu Ruben says, what are a few ways I could strike up an initial conversation before soliciting information from a licensee to send over my marketing material? Uh, it's just going to seem contrived. If you do that, especially on LinkedIn, um, you know, like you just want to talk. People don't have time to just shoot the shit these days. The way you make a relationship with a marketing manager to companies to send them a product. That first product is how you make that relationship. And so if you are um, just chatting them up and wasting their time, let's say it's on LinkedIn or via email, they don't have time for that. So it's OK just to be direct. Um, you know, now if you are on LinkedIn and you make a comment like, oh, I, I see you're a part of this group or that group and or you can make a comment about a particular product you really like or you like their company or something like that. That's fine. I think you can do it at the same time you're asking to submit a product to their company. But if they see you've just been like chatting them up and and trying to establish a relationship, I think for the most part, um, it's just wasting their time. So I'd recommend not doing that. Um, um, not to say that there aren't instances where it might make sense. Um, and you also said, thank you for these hosting these sessions. I truly appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome, Ruben. Um, uh, D. Druknight, I guess. Um, I have an idea for a digital print-on-demand clothing. Other than a few small differences, the product would basically be the same as well, a lot of other similar companies do, but the application slash market would be pretty new, I believe. Does that sound worth pursuing? I couldn't say without knowing what the product is. It's too, uh, that's one issue with, uh, you know, doing these chats. I, I couldn't say, don't, please don't disclose what the product is. So I, there's no way I could say, sorry. Um, Uh, Smitty said, hi, Andrew, I have a product to bring to market. I believe <coughs> once retailers see my product and see it will help prevent um, customer and associates from injury, most will want to add it to their business. 
Um, if my product causes a injury, who is liable then? Okay. So it sounds like you have a commercial product. Prevent customer. Okay. And see, it will prevent customer and associate injuries. Okay. So it sounds like it's a um, it's a fixture in the store or something like that that's going to prevent associates and customers from getting injured. So you would license it. I have to assume we're on this chat, so you know I can't get all the details. But let's say it's a product that you use in the store and it's some sort of fixture, some sort of device that prevents customers and associates from getting injured. So you would sell to the companies selling these fixtures or devices to Targets and Walmarts and other retailers, right? Um, so that's who you'd be licensing to. The other part of your question is if my product caused an injury, who is liable? So we've covered this on other uh, chats that I've done. And so you're covered every which way till Tuesday. We've never had one of our students ever um, get sued by a consumer or a licensee for, for injury. So here are all the different ways you get covered. I'll try to keep it quick because I've answered this question many times before. So when you do a licensing deal, you always want to insist you're covered under their product liability insurance. To sell at any major retailer, they'll have a million or $2 million of product liability insurance. And it, I've never had an instance where it costs them one dime to put you on their product liability insurance. And sometimes they don't know that and you need to tell them that. You say, look, from my experience, it won't cost you anything to put me on your product liability insurance. Um, so that's huge right there, right? Another measure of protection is they don't know you exist. We had this one company that's licensed a bunch of products from our students, and they put the inventor's picture on the back of the package, but 99.5% of the time, they're not going to do that. So they don't know you exist. And even if they did look it up, maybe we have a patent or something like that, they're going to want to sue the company, not you, right? But let's say they did sue you. When you do the deal, for first off, you're covering their product liability insurance. So that's probably going to cover you, hopefully. Um, but you always do a deal, a licensing deal with the company under your LLC. So the money comes in, you then deposit your personal bank account. It's a shell of a company. So if you did get sued, you would just, you know, you just close up that company. And I've never had that happen in 21 years. Would you be able to do a separate deal with the same company, um, potential licensee, probably? Um, but so one, they don't know you exist. Two, you're covered under their product liability insurance. Three, you never do a licensing deal on your own name. You always file an LC. So it's just an empty shell and they can't get out your personal assets. And, and then um, for our international students that are overseas, what are they going to come sue you in Greece or in Germany or something? Like it's probably pretty unlikely. Um, so you're covered every which way till Tuesday. We have a students that have licensed ladder products, high liability products they've never had an issue. Um, so, you know, I, you want to cover yourself every which way, but our students have never had to use that, any of those things, not once. Could it happen? Yes, it could. And that's why you want to do all those things. Um, okay. Uh, Waleed, uh, hi, Andrew, does an issued or published non-provisional patent, uh, increase the opportunity for licensing. Um, it, it can, but it's too big of a risk to go out and spend 10 grand on a patent is, is risky in so many ways. Um, you know, you want to get a fish on the hook. If you can spend 75 bucks on a provisional 
and then get them to give you the money to pay for the pad, that really lowers your risk dramatically. But then another risk for filing a full utility patent is they come up with issues. They're like, well, we really like this product, but we don't like this or this. Now you need to file a whole other freaking patent. That's nuts. And so it's, it's, it's such a bad use of money and so unnecessary. We have plenty of people that have filed patents and they come on board and they license the product. Um, but the companies quite often don't care if it's patent pending. The, to think that any company that says, oh, we can't license this from you, it's not issued, that's ridiculous. I mean, for any company to come up with a new product, even themselves, come up with their own product, they're like, well, we came up with this great product and we're going to sit around waiting because it can take two to three years for a patent issue quite often. And, and then, we'll, then we'll bring it to the market. It's ridiculous. The product might not even make any sense anymore at that point. So when companies really obsess over whether or not it's issued, that's a major red flag. It's, it's kind of an indicator quite often that this deal is not going to happen. Um, and they've got this twisted idea of the marketplace. Um, but in some industries that are really brutal with the patents, could it, could it help that you have an issued patent if you've already filed one? Sure. But it's just not worth it, and it's not necessary. Um, and, and you could ha- end up having to file another one because then you got to fix whatever you didn't put in the first one because you didn't really understand the manufacturing or all, all of that. So um, it's a 501, so I think we're going to call it a, a night here. Um, um, yeah, so hopefully you guys felt that was helpful. Um, one thing I like to say at the end of these uh, Q&A sessions is um, most of you, probably 95% of you, coming up with ideas just became part of who you are one day. You just started having ideas. You didn't say, I'm going to plan to be an inventor. It's part of who you are. But there's this big disconnect then. The longer you're thinking about your ideas, you're not getting them out, and you're not really making an attempt. And filing patents and making prototypes is not getting your idea out. That's just spending money. But you're not getting it out in front of potential licensees and so that they can license it and pay you royalties. Um, It starts to become a little bit of thorn in your side. You get so excited about coming up with ideas But then when you can't get it out because you're like, well, I don't know how to do that. Then you just go back and file more patents, make more prototypes. You're not reaching out to companies and you're like, well, what's the point of that? And there is no point in that. That's ridiculous. That's like this painter that paints these beautiful portraits or beautiful paintings and they just keep them all in their garage and they never show them to anybody. You're like the product artist. You need to get your artwork out into stores and into onto people's hands so they can enjoy it, just like an artist would get their products into museums and into people's hallways and living rooms so people can enjoy it. So um, do whatever you can. Watch these shows. Watch our YouTube channel. Join our coaching program. Our students are licensing stuff every week um, to move it forward one way or another. If we don't help you, find somebody to help you to move it forward. It's part of who you are. And for most of you, it probably won't go, go away. Um, maybe some of you just have one idea, but if you think really hard, most of you probably got a bunch of other ideas too. And you're like, well, this is my main focus now, but I'm never going to stop coming up with ideas. So if you can become empowered with an approach to license, hopefully the event right approach, I think we're the best thing out there. I'm biased and some co-founder, but um, then you need to do it. So, but you need to do it at the right point in your life. Maybe, maybe you're out of a job or maybe you're, I'm too overwhelmed right now. But if you can have, if you feel like you can have two to six hours a week, you have enough time to license. And you have enough time to be coached by us too. 
I always tell people when they come on board with us, new coaching students, you have to set aside two to six hours a week. It's more about, and this applies to folks that don't sign up for a coaching program too, every week, two to six hours a week. Not go crazy one week and forget about it for an entire month. That's crap. That won't work. It's don't do it in fits and starts. Make it part of your weekly routine. So thank you for all the nice things you guys are saying. Appreciate it. I've uh, been talking for an hour, so I'm going to jump off. Take care, keep inventing, and we'll catch up with you guys next time. Bye.